0: Welcome, uh, welcome to Trinity. Welcome to uh, our continuation of systematic theology. As you can see, the topic here today is soteriology, um, and of course, I would say, you know, I would ask, hey, who can tell me what soteriology is? But I think the, the answer to the question is up on the up on the board, right? So we're looking at the study of of salvation. This is actually the second week. Uh, second week of this particular section. Um, last week, we kicked it off, and what we did was we went through uh, a passage in, in John 6, John chapter 6, and it's verses 20, I think it's 25 through 51. And uh, we made it probably through about three-quarters of the class, which constituted kind of an exposition of the of the passage and an interaction and conversation but then we didn't get to the end where we make theological observations and things of that nature. So rather than just kind of jump in at the end, uh, what I wanted to do is go back through the passage. Um, it should be considerably quicker than it was last week because um, there won't be as many questions. I'll just kind of make observations as, as we go along, okay? And then um, <clears throat> as we're going along, um, I am trying to, you know, trying to, Keep it, keep it going. However, if you have any questions or if you have any comments, please stop me. You know, if I'm not looking at you, say something. If I am looking at you, just raise your hand and and I'll call call on you. This is a lot more profitable, I think, for everyone um, when we interact on this stuff, right? Because I can be thinking through this topic in a particular way from a kind of a, an, an angle and be explaining it but you might be coming at it from a slightly different angle. So you might have some questions that I'm not answering, right? Or you may have some uh, observations that I don't necessarily make that would be profitable for, for the class, all right, for the, the congregation as a whole. So feel free to, to chime in, ask questions, whatever you want to do as, as we go along. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get get going back in John 6, uh, picking up, uh, I think, the first 25. Father, thank you once again for this, uh, for this morning to come together and to, um, uh, to study your word, uh, to study this uh, wonderful topic of, of salvation. Father, I ask that um, for each one of us that you make us understand that this is more than an intellectual exercise. This is something that is just vital uh, to us having a healthy relationship with you. Understanding who you are, understanding uh, who we are in relation to you and always in relation to you. And Father, just uh, we ask you to uh, uh, be glorified in everything that we think and say and do. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So, John chapter 6, verses 25 through 51. All right. So, for context, at the beginning of, uh, of John 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. Um, that was the first 15 verses. And then he, he, there was the miracle that he, you know, he walked on water. And that's you know, kind of how he got from, from one side to the other. Um, and then in, in verse 22, the crowds crossed the Sea of Galilee looking for him. And um, that's where we, we pick up in verse 25. So John 6 says, when they found him, him uh, they being the, the crowds, Uh, with this part of the text is that um, the people both then and now often see Jesus as a means to a purely materialistic end. And, you know, one of the, just a quick observation here, one of the things that um, blows me away pretty often, I think, is, you know, Ken and I don't talk about, um, you know, what I'm going to be teaching or necessarily even what he's going to be preaching on in particular on a, on a given week. And so I I am blown away when I will say something in Sunday school class and then, you know, an hour or so later, uh, Ken will say almost the same exact words in a completely different context, but kind of talking about the same thing. Um, it's not anything that we're coordinating, and it doesn't happen every week, but it happens frequently enough to where I really, really understand that the Holy Spirit is working in us to, um, to, to I guess, to, to, to put forth these messages, to, uh, to help us understand um, who he is and kind of, I guess, what, what's important. So anyway, um, one of the things he said last week, and I also, I, I did as well, is that people do see Jesus as a, an ends to a purely materialistic, I'm sorry, a means to a pure, purely materialistic end. And so, um, you know, it might be, you know, um, to, to be blessed in a job or to, you know, blessed in a job or to be, um, you know for a house, or to be healthy, or or whatever the case may be. But what we have to understand, what is vitally important for us to understand, is that Jesus is not a means to anything. Jesus is not even a means to salvation. Jesus is, is the end. He is the salvation. He is the purpose of the salvation. That's what that word telos means. Telos is a Greek word that means purpose or goal. And so what we see is that Jesus is the the purpose, the goal, the target of not only salvation, but of creation, you know, uh, salvation, the law, creation. Um, essentially, if it exists and it's good, Jesus is the purpose of that, okay? Verse 28, <clears throat> and one more thing, you you. Guys have heard me say this quite often, but we've got some fairly new folks here, so I, I want to say it again. Um, Sunday mornings are often thought of as, our, our religion or our Christianity, is often thought of as a, a, a book, um, a book that you put on a shelf, okay? And that, that book is called religion, or it's Jesus, or it's Christianity, or whatever you want to call it. And so you put that book on a shelf, <clears throat> and next to that book is the rest of the things that, you know, uh, way, uh, topics or whatever that we interact with the world. One might be economics, one might be ethics, one might be, you know, science, one might be any number of things, right? <clears throat> but Christianity is not a book on a shelf. Christianity is the bookshelf. Everything, fit, everything else fits into Christianity. If it's science, science as we know it, modern science, finds its root in the person of God. In the fact that God is orderly and unchanging and just and <clears throat> getting choked up here. Modern so modern science is based on the underlying Principle there is that the the world is orderly because God is orderly. And if the world is not orderly, then science is not possible. Okay? And that's why, um, science followed the development of Christianity in Europe. And it, science did not develop in China or, um, North America or anywhere else. It developed as a consequence of Of Christianity, okay? Because no other worldview looks at, um, no other worldview looks at the world and looks at God in that way, okay? Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be uh, doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent, um, whom he has sent. So when Jesus said, um, in the, the previous passage, when Jesus said, uh, do not work for the food that perishes, but for eternal life, the crowd focused on the aspect of work, right? What was, um, when he said, do not work for the food that perishes, they focuses, focused on, on work that they were, um, they were presuming that they were able to earn eternal life, right? That was their way of thinking. That's not a biblical concept. That's not an Old Testament concept. But that is a way that um, the Old Testament Jews had corrupted God's word and, and turned it into uh, an achievement. So, you know, when we talk about legalism, we talk about the Pharisees. They believed that you could earn your way into a relationship with God. And of course, from the beginning to the end, um, the Bible teaches against that, teaches that that's that's not true. But they reveal where they were in their thinking when they emphasize that. They should have focused on eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Give, gift, grace is a gift. As it turns out, even your faith is the works of God. We'll get into that a little bit later. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Uh, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So here they're comparing Jesus to Moses, and they're thinking of him in purely and merely human terms, which... Jesus is fully human, but he's not merely human, okay? Big difference. And they asked for a sign, but they had just seen one. And then modern skeptics kind of commit this same error, right? Um, We talked about that last week. I, for time's sake, I'll, I'll move on. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So we constantly need to be reminded that all good things come from God. And one of the things that we talked about last week was we we talked about a couple of examples where there are um, churches where the focus of Sunday morning seems to be on the human being, the person that is standing in the pulpit, as opposed to the person who died for us 2,000 years ago. Okay? And so um, that's a whole story about even the when we were purchasing this building um, and how the focus is on, you know, um, blessings flowing through the, through the pastor, you know, as almost like a priest or something. Um, but, you know, as we read in, uh, in, in Scripture, um, you know, we don't need a priest between us and Christ. Christ is the high priest, and we are a, what, a nation of priests. So we have interaction with directly with Jesus. We don't need any clergy or anybody else between us and him. We can't have anything anything else between us and him or anybody else between us and him. And then, of course, he is our uh, the mediator between us and the, and the Father. We talked about healing ministries, things like that. Um, and my point there was, when you see these folks on, you know, flying around in their planes, and then they land in some some city, and they go to a big arena, and there's tens of thousands of people there, and they slay people in the spirit and all of that. Where's that glory going? Who's receiving that glory? It's always the person that's up there. Oh, he's so powerful. No, he's not. Holy Spirit is powerful, and nobody slays anything in the, you know, in the Spirit. Um, it's um, the Holy Spirit works. And if you think about it, the Holy Spirit never uh, seeks glory on his own. Who is the Holy Spirit always, 100% of the time, pointing to? Christ. It's like the Holy Spirit points to Christ, Christ points to the Father, and the Father points to Christ, okay? And nobody points to the man standing on the stage, having people fall down and gyrate in front of him. Another observation we made was bread was way more important in ancient times than it is now. Um, You and I, if we're out of bread, You know, it's kind of like Marie Antoinette, right? We we can eat cake or rolls or Pop-Tarts. Actually, Pop-Tart sounds pretty good right now. Um, They, when they're out of bread, they're starving. I mean, if they had a dog or something, which they wouldn't, but if they had a dog or something, they they might be looking at the dog. Um, You and I, unless there's some really unique circumstances that I'm not aware of, you and I don't really know what it's like to be hungry. In the Western world, that is an absolute rarity. And so when we take that, we have to get rid of our Western, to the extent that we can, get rid of our Western eyes and think about that person, which it still occurs, you know, in, in the world today, but we have to think about that person who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. And they're completely reliant reliant upon the grinding of that that grain into flour to make bread because that is their sustenance. Okay. So Jesus being the bread of life was a huge claim. Huge. If you and I were going to use an, if he were to use an analogy for us today, like we said last week, it would probably be, um, you know, Jesus is like the oxygen of life or something like that. Cause I think we can all, um, understand what it's like, like to, um, uh, be uncertain of where that next breath is coming from. Jesus says the bread of God, um, he is our sustenance, okay? He is our sustenance. He's our means of it. Well, he's not our means of anything. He is our existence, okay? This does not jive with most uh, modern um, understandings, modern-day understandings, um, a lot of folks look at Jesus as um, a, a teacher, an ethical teacher. Um, they take the, the teachings where he says, love your neighbor, and they say, wow, isn't that amazing? And then they completely divorce what Jesus meant by love and what they mean by love. Um, but then they also jettison um uh, where he says, I am the bread of life, or I am the vine, or nobody comes to the Father except through me. They conveniently set those sayings aside, but when he says, love your, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, they, they hold that up. Okay? And so um, this idea of Jesus being our sustenance does not, is not consistent with modern-day understandings of, of who he is. It's greatly, um, today it's greatly diminished. And this idea of requesting the bread always, they're they're thinking, and and this one's kind of okay because they, I don't think it had been revealed to them yet, but we don't need to always be receiving Jesus, right? It's not like some ongoing thing, like he has to be crucified every week or anything like that. Or that we have to receive him every week, or that we even need to receive him twice, or to be double blessed, or anything like that. It's Jesus is received, transaction is complete. Okay, there's no reversing, there's no injecting more Jesus. <laughs> um sounds really weird, doesn't it? And there is no um you know removing of, of Jesus. We receive, we receive Christ. We are, uh, um, the ball begins to roll, okay? And through justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification, and all those Asians that we've talked about. We'll talk about those uh, more in here, here in just a little bit. Um, but again, Jesus is um, receiving Christ as a one-time, one-time deal. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not uh, still do I'm sorry. but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven uh, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the first question is, who talks like that? Okay? If Jesus is God, you know, I won't be too crass here, but if Jesus is not actually God, then he's a nutcase. Because okay? he's not just teaching ethics, he's teaching his own identity. And if he's not God, that's, that is some crazy talk. But he is God, so it's, it's truth, and it's beautiful truth. Comments, signs, or evidence have never convinced anyone of anything about God. Because whether or not you believe that God exists, whether or not um, you, um, you know, love him, trust him, that sort of thing, those are not rational questions, you know? Those are not rational decisions. Those are matters of, um, you know, if you, nine times out of ten, if somebody denies that that. God exists. It's not because they actually believe that He doesn't exist. It's that they're angry with Him. They want to be their own God. You know, and we talked quite a bit about that last week. Um, So those things. um, It's it's not like somebody refuses to believe in the existence of God, and then you present all this overwhelming evidence, and then prove that He exists. All of a sudden, somebody's going, "Oh, wow, He exists," and then. They, they trust Christ as a result of their rational um, some rational evidence. That's why evidence-based apologetics, it has value, but it's diminished value. Okay? It's 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 small a small amount of value and it doesn't really is not a major factor in the in the conversion of, of folks. If we tie uh, verse 36 and 37 together, um, Jesus says, um, I said to you that you have not seen me and yet do not believe. Right? So that's 36. 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. we tie those two together, they do not believe because the Father has not given them to the Son. It's a logical conclusion there. Okay? They don't believe because the Father has not given them to the Son. Let me rephrase that. It do, they do not believe... It's not that their unbelief is because the Father did not give them to the Son. It's that they believe because they're depraved, but they don't have the ability to believe because the Father gave them to the Son. We'll get more into that here here shortly. Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the emphasis on the will of the Father and the obedience of the Son. When Jesus teaches, he's always teaching about the will of God. It's a top-down sort of way of talking and a way of emphasis. Okay. It's God first and then us. With, um, a lot of times when we talk, when we preach, when we, uh, interact on these topics, it's us first and then God. You know, a few weeks ago, probably about two months ago, we talked about, um, something called moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's the, like, the dominant, um, worldview of people in Western, in the Western world. And it's the idea that God is in my life when I want him to be in my life, when I need something. That's the therapeutic aspect of it, right? And um, what Jesus, if you actually pay attention to Jesus' teaching, he teaches the complete antithesis of that, okay? He teaches us that not that God is here for us, it's that we are here for God. Now, that does not mean that God does not love us. That does not mean that God does not have mercy and grace on us. But what it does mean is that we can't put the cart before the horse. We have to understand that um, God is the the center of everything, not not us. The souls of the saints um, are a gift from the Father to the Son. That's you and I. And the loss of a single soul... Uh, that has been given to him would be unthinkable. So verse 40 should, um, yeah, we don't want to take verse 40 in isolation where, um, because some people do that, they'll take verse 40 in isolation. And it sounds like um, people are able to believe of their own own accord. Uh, verse 41, so the the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So they knew what he was saying and they didn't like it very much. They said, is not, this, uh, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So there's, uh, well, first of all, the whole language of grumbling is meant to throw us back to what? Exodus, right? When the Israelites were um, grumbling, and then when they were grumbling, what was kind of the consequence of that? 40 years of wondering, right? And so what uh, John is showing here is the common unbelief in Israel, you know, what, 1,400 years later, that language is no accident. So how insane would Jesus' statement be if he wasn't actually God? We already talked about that. This presents a perceived tension between his deity and his humanity. And we spent a long time talking about Jesus' deity and his uh, humanity. And you can kind of see that here, where he came down from heaven, but at the same time, he was born and placed in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. You know. Verse 43, we are coming to the end. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, uh, who sent me draws him. That's a key verse, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he uh, he who is from God. He has seen the Father. This whole idea of draw, unless the Father draws him, um, is often preached that this idea of draw is to woo and romance, right? Like a teenager looking for a prom date. It's kind of what it reminds me of. But that is not what what this means. The word draw in this context means um, to like unsheathe a sword, to pull a sword out of a out of a sheath. Okay, it's not something where. Um, you know, you're trying to convince uh, the, the sword to come out of the sheath. Um, you're trying to woo or romance the sword to come out of the sheath. If you're going to pull a sword out of a sheath, what do you do? You Reach down, you grab it, and you pull it out. You draw it out. And that's what, um, that's what the Holy Spirit does on the Father's behalf. The need for the Father to draw someone to uh, someone the need for the Father to draw someone speaks of the inability of humans to believe on our own. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. So, verse 51 here, I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. It's clearly an invitation to believe. It's an invitation to the people that are listening to actually believe in Christ. But like Jesus's dual natures, it presents a perceived tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Okay? And that's something that we're going to be talking about over the next, I don't know, 3 or 4 weeks. Um, yes sir. Would we be that the stuff here, they truly have to hold and hold and right now the Holy Spirit to be given. So Exactly. Being yes. In the future, yes. When the Holy Spirit does come, right. They can, they can. Right. Um, I believe that's true but then there's also a one of the things we have to understand also is that there were some people who believed in him, recognized him. him. Holy Spirit was working in their hearts, although he wasn't dwelling with them quite yet because Pentecost had not occurred. Um, But also, we're going to get into, um, in just a a few minutes, we're going to get into the call, the call of God. And we almost have to think of the calls of God because there's distinct ones. So if we hit that, and I don't uh, really answer your question, uh, say something, all right? Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, theologians have distinguished between the, uh, the general or gospel call and the particular or effectual call. And let me go ahead and jump through the... Don't read that. There we go. All right. So let's talk about that real quick. Because um, I mentioned it last week, but it, it wasn't uh, the most eloquent um, of, of presentations. So there's the general or gospel call. Right, so um, you can refer to it as as either way, uh, in either way, and and so what this call is is this is the gospel preached outwardly to the world. Okay, it's um, well, um, it goes out indiscriminately to everyone. Let me rephrase that. It should go out indiscriminately to everyone. Um, It is visible. Now, what what do you think I mean by visible? Tell me about the difference between the visible church and the invisible church. Can somebody comment on that? Hmm. Okay. Um, uh, it is verbal, and and faith comes through through hearing, but I'm kind of. Um, what I'm doing is kind of going down a slightly different, from a different angle. And what it is, is if you think about the visible church and the invisible church, okay, the visible church is across the world, um, every human being that, that professes Christ goes to, to church on a Sunday morning, you know, sits in pews or chairs or benches or, you know, under a tree or what, whatever the case may be. These are folks that outwardly profess Christ, okay? That's the visible church because it's, or I should say, almost the perceivable church would probably be a better word for it, okay? Who can tell me what the invisible church is? Yes, sir? Yes, it's the totality of people who actually do repent and believe in Christ, um, that actually sounded like a textbook, definitely. He must have a theological dictionary over there or something. Okay? Um, so, uh, the idea there is, and, you know, disturbing or, or sad or whatever the case, you know, whatever word you want to use, those two things are not 100% overlap. Okay? Not everybody that professes Christ um, outwardly, not everybody that, goes to church, is actually a redeemed uh, a redeemed person who is one of God's children. Okay? There are, there are, you know, the Bible talks about the weed and the tares. There's going to be, you know, wheat, I'm sorry, tares or weeds among us. Okay? Um, so there's not a 100% overlap between those two things. So we have the idea of the visible church and the invisible church. Okay? Now, it's not our prerogative to determine who's in the invisible church, okay? Unless it's for the purposes of, of evangelism or something of that nature or counseling, okay? But it's not for us to um, to, to judge folks, their um, salvation, um, for the purposes of, of boosting ourselves up by pushing them down. Does that make sense? But there are... Uh, there are times where we have to evaluate, do we really believe that this person is saved because, you know, they may, may need the gospel, you know? So anyway, so very similarly, uh, there is kind of the visible or perceivable call, which goes out to the world and everybody, everybody hears it, or at least everybody should hear it, hear it, see it, etc., and so forth. Um, And then um, there's the idea that it it can be resisted. Okay, so there's the the visible general gospel call that goes out, and this can be resisted. People can deny, um, uh, when you evangelize to somebody, it it can be denied. Examples are Acts uh, chapter 7, verse 51. It um, says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And then Jesus speaking in Luke 13 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Okay, so he's, there's this gospel call going out, but the folks aren't aren't willing. And so that's the idea of the general um, or gospel call. So who performs this call? Everyone. Everyone. Believers. believers. Yeah, absolutely, believers. Now there's another call of God, and it's almost like I wish we had two completely different words here, but this is the particular or effectual call. And this is, as the gospel is proclaimed, in other words, the gospel call, as the gospel is proclaimed, and reaches, our, um, on the ear, reaches the ears of the hearers, God works within the hearts of his elect, the father effectually uh, calling them to his son by the power of his Holy Spirit. Effectual means successful in producing a desired or intended result. Okay? So this effectual call or particular call always, it all, um, one way to say it is um, God wants who he gets and he gets who he wants. Okay? So the Father calls the elect to the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit working in a person's heart. Unlike the gospel call, which goes out to all people, the effectual call is specific, taking place within the hearts of God's elect alone. It is invisible. Sort of thing, we can't see it working. We can't hear it. It's the Holy Spirit. He is working within uh, a person's heart and, and mind. The effectual call is concurrent with what we call regeneration. Um, Regeneration is, think of as generation, genesis, it's new genesis, new creation. When the Bible talks about becoming a, you are a new creation, this is what we're talking about here. The effectual call and the regeneration or the new creation in Christ is like two sides of the same coin. Uh, This is the beginning of what we call the golden chain of salvation, which is in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Um, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are, are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so you have this chain. We call this the golden chain of salvation. Um, A a more theological term is called the ordo salutis. Who's heard of the ordo salutis? Okay. Um, And it's the, what we refer to, again, the order of salvation. We've talked about, In the past, we've talked about what? What are some of the Asians? Justification. What? Sanctification. Sanctification. What else? Glorification. Glorification. Regeneration. Adoption. Right? I love adoption. Um, We're missing one or two, but we'll, we'll just show the diagram. All right. Um, can you guys read that? Yeah, okay, yeah, that's a really small screen back there. Um, so this is from a Michael Horton book, um, I'm kind of a Michael Horton fan, and he he takes you can see at the bottom you have the effectual calling and regeneration, which we just talked about, and then you have conversion, which is faith and repentance, and then you have justification, adoption, sanctification, and perseverance. And then finally, glorification. And what I like about this is he puts all of that under the umbrella of union with Christ, which that's one of the things I like about Horton is he's always looking at, if you think about union with Christ, it's kind of an, it's an end times thing, right? Where the ultimate union that we have with Christ is going to be, we're sitting at his table with him um, at, in the end, going into you know e- eternal life, Um, the eternal state, and we're, we're celebrating with him at at a banquet, right? And so this union with Christ, we are, um, the the culmination of that uh, is is our glorification, but um, all of these are are kind of under that banner, working toward that end. And then, um, I forget which book this is from, who is this from? I don't remember, but... um, found on the interwebs where everything must be true, right? But it was a reputable source. And so uh, you can see it kind of spelled out with some proof text there. Election, the gospel call, regeneration. Here it's split out. And then you have conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and then glorification. Yes. So I think generally speaking, the, the hot button portion of this is regeneration, conversion. Yes. First and right. People. What's the reasoning for having them be first and second? I think it's not so much in chronology as it, as it is, hard to explain. Uh, it's not so much in chronology as it is in uh, logical progression, and right? Cause and, cause and effect. That's a good way, good good terminology for it.
1: Because regeneration, conversion, justification, and adoption are all? all. Yeah. Goals, you could almost them in one bucket.
0: You're not going to have one without the other, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, right. All
1: four of those have to occur roughly at the, same, right. this, at
0: the same time. Right. But there is a, this is a, a logical prog- progression through them. So for, for example, um, regeneration, conversion, well, we can't believe unless our heart's been changed. Right. So now that's, I mean, is that a millisecond in between? I, I mean, I don't really know, right? But regeneration has to occur before conversion. Um, we cannot be uh, uh, sons of, of God um, unless we're already justified, right? So the just when I say already, again, we're talking like microsecond, millisecond. You know, there's not really a time component. It's just a it's just a um, logical progression or cause and effect sort of thing. Okay. So justification needs to come before adoption. And then once we're adopted, he's working in our heart. And you do have a time component with sanctification, you know. Um, And then ultimately perseverance and glorification. Yes, Ify? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, So starting next week, we're going to, um, well, let me uh, briefly, or uh, the short answer is no, I don't have an Old Testament model. I'm not going to say it's there. I'm going to say it's probably not there. Um, But what we're going to do next week, starting next week, is we're going to start talking about what's called the, the Canons of Dort. Okay? And we're going to look at it in historical context. And um, the first um, kind of subject or the, the, the first article of the Canons of Dort, and I'll explain what all of that is later, um, is on election. And so one of the things that we're going to do is look at election and then go back um, to the Old Testament and bring it forward, do a little biblical theology, right? So we're going to look at, say, um, Abraham and some of the things that God said about Israel and Deuteronomy as to why he elected them, kind of that, that sort of thing. So I don't know that we'll necessarily be able to do the whole ordo salutis with the order with the Old Testament, but we're going to take what we can and, and do kind of a biblical theology to understand at least each one of them uh, going back, um, going back through the, the history of redemption. Is that cool? What's that? It has, to be. it has to be. Yes. Yes. Like it or not, it has to be. Yes. Good. That's a, a good question. Um, you know, because the Old Testament, it just seems like so often the Old Testament takes a back seat in our teaching. Um, I've even, I even had a friend of mine, we were doing a Bible study together at, at work, and he and his church, they 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 don't do they don't have anything to do with the old testament. Um he told me why would we mess with the old testament? We have the new testament. Right? Well, what would we mess with Israel? We have Jesus. That sort of thing. Well, it's because you can't understand anything in the new testament without understanding the old testament. And um anything in in depth, you know. You can understand John 3:16 at a very very shallow level, but you can't understand his baptism. You can't understand so many things without, the, and, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, but, uh, so I really like to go back and tie all of this in with the old Testament and Genesis. It comes in in a surprising number of times, you know? Um, so now let's go back. Any other questions? You didn't read that, did you? All right. Oh, got another one. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. Yep. the it is time. Yeah. that, like Mm hmm. Right. And he go somewhere, be quiet, or come up for reason. hmm. Why did it matter that if he died before then? Right. But before his time? Yeah, yeah. Right. right. If he was
1: about to toss of the cliff, and uh-huh. someone just quickly erected, like, a right. structure, right. and instead of tossing off the cliff, you just put him on that right before they cut him off Right.
0: Okay, that's a great question. Did everybody hear, hear the question? Um, essentially, when they're when Jesus is teaching and the Jews are confronting him and they're ready to throw him off of a cliff, um, you know, what I guess it, what Ife is asking is what would have been the difference between that and him dying on the day that. God had predetermined um on the established cross at you know at that time and place and everything. What what would have been the the I am about to ask me for clarification first that um, <laughs> Assuming that all the cross you know
1: the bells still was Right. and still have darkness
0: and all that. I'm right. Like, there you go. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> go ahead.
1: Right. So that because it was God's will, you should meet the Christ, or you should hear these things. So perhaps it was not until today whose fiction that um, everyone who God had willed would meet, see, or hear Christ had done so. Now, could he not have been thrown off the cliff on that date, the different date? Right. You know,
0: I don't know what an answer to that Well, so, emphatically, it was prophesied that he was done on the cross. Right. And he, he mentioned that, uh, he he said, you know, if, if they're getting ready to throw him off of a cliff, they construct a cross, and that would be to meet prophecy, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yes, sir. You wouldn't have examples of Jesus being at the faith of Gentiles. Right, okay. So you wouldn't have any of that. Right. right right all in the one that came for the gentiles i'm destroying yeah no good at that time you wouldn't have these things where jesus actually participated in right so so there was yeah so there were yeah so there were still like gentiles gentile elect that needed to be brought in that kind of th- things of and the examples and all the prophecies yep right right
1: Right. To fulfill all the messianic mm-hmm. prophecies as well, right? And they would not have been fulfilled, yeah, had he been thrown off that cliff,
0: right? Okay, yep. Yeah. So, um, and what Stuart's saying is all the messianic prophecies needed to be fulfilled, um, and they wouldn't have been fulfilled if he'd have been thrown off the, the cliff, yes, ma'am, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. right. 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 And so Jenny's saying that uh, that God is sovereign and he's appointed the time and a way and etc. and so um, it's almost like there is no what if, right, in a, in a way, um, because we're not going to be able to circumvent his, his will, right, uh, his, his timing. Um, good. Anybody else? No? Okay. So first of all, you apologized a couple of times for asking the questions. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, what, I'll, what I'll say is I like, what I like about that kind of question not that you guys necessarily care what I like, but I'll just throw it out there anyway. Um, what I like about that kind of question is, it, it, I'm not going to call it fringy, right? Um, but it, it's, it's a little bit kind of on, on the edges of, of what, we, what we can know. Um, we begin to, if we answer it, we begin to get into a little bit, I, I think, of uncertainty. What I like about it, though, is it, it makes us think in terms of well, what is the, the, the reasoning, what is the chain of reasoning, what is the rubric by which we understand who Jesus is, is, who Jesus is, God's sovereignty, et cetera, and so forth. And it helps us to ask questions from a different angle that we don't normally think about, right? One of my, you know, going back, I, I had a, a hard, probably 15 years ago, had a hard time in a Sunday school class because I, I asked the question, do you guys think that Hagar was, was saved? You know, Ishmael's mom. And, um, you know, and I had somebody say, you know, what difference does it make? And kind of started yelling at me a little bit, you know. And the the reason being is because what I noticed was that God was comforting Hagar. And do we have any instance in the Bible where God comforts an unbeliever? You know, he he may warn them, he may appear to them, but do we have any instance where God comforts an unbeliever? Right? Now, we can't come to a definitive, I don't think we can come to a definitive understanding of whether or not Hagar was, was saved or not. And if we do, we would need some serious text, you know, to, to be able to support, one, you know, kind of one way or the other. Um, but, the motivation for that question is it reveals something about God. It helps us to understand, you know, think about God in a slightly different way. And that's one of the reasons why I, I like this question is because we can ask what if, but we have to be careful with the certainty of our answer, right? Okay. So and my, my thoughts on it, um, and it's kind of an amalgamation of, of, of a lot of the things that were said, is that... Um, you know, you have the, the timing of the lamb, you know, um, the, the Pascal lamb and the Passover and all of that. I think the timing of all of that was vitally important to, to who Christ is. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, vitally important to the event of, of the, um, the crucifixion. And so I think that, you know, because we talked about Jesus being, you know, the target or the goal or the purpose Um, it's not just creation, it's not just salvation, I mean, it's all the more granular stuff too, right? If you look at, um, if you look at, uh, you know, where it says uh, Jesus is the end of the law, we often think of that as Jesus is the, Jesus means the law is cut off, okay? That it's, it's terminated. Okay, maybe so, but um, what the word there, telos, means is not end in the sense that he's the last one or there's a termination. It means he's the goal, he's the point, he's the target of the law. So when um, all of these uh, ritual laws around sacrifice and things of that nature, um, purity laws, moral laws, all these different things what what he's saying there is that they're all pointing forward to him. And so whether it's the sacrifices or loving your neighbor as yourself or whatever, those are all pointing forward to him. That's what that Jesus being the end of the law means. Okay. And so everything about his life was, was carefully timed and orchestrated and came together in the, in the perfect way. Okay. But what I, uh, one to add a layer onto if he's question is, you know, um, why would Jesus not do something because it wasn't his time? You know, I mean, if God is sovereign, then those things are going to occur anyway. Right? Well, that, that's where you get into human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Those two things work together. God is ultimately sovereign, um, but we are still responsible for what it is that we think and say and do. There are decisions, okay? Um, We can't, you know, blame blame him, kind of of that sort of thing, all right? Um, And I think what we'll do—it's such a great topic. I think what we'll do is maybe at the very beginning of class— yeah, you know, famous last words. Very beginning of the class next week, we're going to look at a handful, uh, two or three passages that kind of demonstrate this tension. Um, Genesis 49. Um, there's one in in Acts, I forget the exact chapter, and then um, and then one in Philippians. All right, we'll we'll try to keep it short. Spend a little time on that, and then we'll we'll start to get into the um, the other stuff. Cool. Any other questions or concerns or thoughts? Yes, ma'am. I
1: just
0: wondering why did um Jesus put the way when he it's older at one time go ahead and do it, you said it would finally change the water wine. Um in Cana? Yeah, um it wasn't his time. You know what? Um Stephen. Do you have an answer to that? Uh, it, it, to put you on the. Did you hear the question? Basically, why did, why did he go ahead and do the miracle? Yeah. Said, it's not yet my time. Yeah. I think I think he's, he's not. What What's not yet his time is the question. It's not yet his time to be revealed as the Messiah. Okay, good. He's not revealing himself as the Messiah. Okay. He's performing a miracle. Okay. I, I think that there's a, there's a small distinction there, but I think it's enough yeah. to say. Excellent. Yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say. I just wanna make sure he knew. Yeah. Uh I think Tassin wrote something like, uh his mother came to him and said they have no wine and he says, woman what has this to do with me and is not getting my time or doesn't do service. Right. Awesome. Hey, hey. You know what? You guys can ask anything you want as long as we have as a, as long as we have a safety net. All right. Excellent. Anybody else? Good question, though. I like it. Anybody else? No? Cool. Uh, Stuart, you mind?
1: No, I don't mind. Father, thank you for uh, the time and your word. Thank you that you have used your spirit to regenerate us and and draw us to Jesus Christ. And I. I pray that your your word would continue to, um, be, uh, to work in our lives, Father. That the truth of it would would change us and glorify you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen.